the place to start as a good communicator is really being a good listener, right? Mm. And so just slowing down, right? You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. All right, well, I'll just remind you really quickly who we're talking to. So we are a coaching and a coach training company and a leadership development company. And so my audience is leaders of complex organizations trying and succeeding in this 21st century labor market. You know, and how does one do that? It's global, it's virtual. Uh, for us, it's a coaching style of leadership and a coaching culture. And so that's who I'm talking to. That's who we work with in our global cohort. And so this time together is really yours to talk about self, talk about what you're doing, talk about your why and your who. And so with that, I'll pass the floor over to you. Our distinguished guest today is Jeff Eschleman, and he's in Phoenix, if I remembered right, and where the time doesn't change. And so I always get confused what time, what time of year it is in different places. So we work a lot with people in Australia and they do daylight t- savings time, but two weeks differently than ours. And so for two weeks of the year, we're two hours different than we normally are. And then it's just confusing. I just wish they would get rid of it. They, the government. Right. <laughs> Over to you, sir. Brag about yourself a little bit and the amazing stuff you're doing. Absolutely. So in short, JR, I'd call myself a warrior. I mean, that started for me really early military experience, similar to yours. At age 20, I was in Saudi Arabia, drove an armored personnel carrier into Iraq for Desert Storm. And I knew when I was coming back from that experience that I'd seen and been asked to do probably the worst things that I'd ever have to do in my life. And so far at age 53, that's still true. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a 30-year corporate warrior. So I spent 30 years right after I got out of the service. I'm kind of a unicorn in the sense that I work for the same organization the entire time. And that wow. is not only a unicorn in my industry, which is which was residential home building, but fairly much a unicorn for just the type of workforce today. But I was really fortunate to work for some good organizations that even though they were acquired, you know, one at one point by a Fortune 500 company, I really did get to work the entire time. And I think that was it was a mix of me and them. I was fortunate to be able to ride out the downturn working for a Fortune 500 company. And then I think I'm the kind of person that you know always gives 105%. I was just fortunate that I felt like I was always giving that much, but the company was, you know, was given back. I'm a people person first. I believe in playing long game with people. I was really fortunate to be able to do that in my organization because I'd had a lot of tenure there. And so I was able to mentor and coach and lead people. And so that was through 
you know, the good times, the, the booms. And again, in my industry and in home building, there's been both, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I've, I've led through growth. I've led through recession. And I just really enjoy, for me, at the holy grail is operational excellence, right? So it's striving for top quartile performance and, and all the major elements. And, and that's really what fueled me between the people and the uh, operational excellence. So today, since I've retired from the home building thing, I've, I coach, I consult, I use my experiences and, and JR, they, they haven't always been good. As a matter of fact, I mean, I've done so many things in my life that I've done wrong. I've been more than a hundred pounds overweight. Mm. I've, I've been bankrupt and I've been divorced and I'm not proud of any of those things, but I am proud of the fact that I've been able to learn from those experiences. I've been able to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and and make my way forward. I mean, personal development is a, is a hallmark for, for me um, personally. And then it's one thing that I really have always encouraged uh, with my next level leaders, just because I think it is the, it's really the cornerstone of anything that you want to be or anything that you want to do differently in your life. So I feel like I've been put on this planet to do certain things. I felt that way. Like when I was in my industry, safety became a big thing for me personally, because unfortunately I had a fatality on one of my job sites mm. that, that really changed. It really changed who I was. It, it really changed the way that I was showing up in my organization. And I knew that I would have to play different. I would have to play bigger if I was going to have an impact and I was going to make job sites, for example, my own job sites. And then uh, lead other people, my peers specifically. I've won some safety awards in the past for national safety leadership. And it was really that kind of calling and inspiration that, that, uh, that led me to that. And so today, JR, I, I use my, my experiences. I've developed a ton of tools. I like to refer to them as tools, strategies, that I've implemented in my own life as a busy executive that was also a husband and a father and a grandfather and all these other, I call them roles that we play in our life. And I've been able to do that pretty well, not always pretty, um, but I've, I've figured some better way forward. So that's a little bit about what I've been doing. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Three very different phases of your life. For um, sure. I'm looking at three screens here. One, I'm looking at you, and then I've got your LinkedIn, and I've got your website here. You've got this, this uh, Zen-looking circle that has success and harmony, and then a three-step process to create your harmony. Could you talk us through that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, I like to say where success and harmony coexist. And I'll tell you, I came up with this idea of harmony I just did a Toastmaster speech about this on Friday, and I called it busting the myth of work-life balance, mm. creating a life of harmony. And the way that I talk about this, JR, is first of all, I think work-life balance, may maybe it's not a myth, but I just think it's actually the wrong measurement, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about like an old apothecary scale, right? Are we suddenly supposed to feel like you know work goes in one of those bowls? And every, everything else in our life goes in the other. Like 
again, that's why I call it the wrong measurement. Sure. And, and so harmony, as I've continued to talk more about this and try to get my perspective a- across to others, my clients specifically, I like to think of harmony in the way of, you know, harmony when you hear it, right? And the example that I use, and I'm not going to belt out the little Whitney Houston for you right now, but <laughs> you know, think about uh, like a Whitney Houston song, right? Where she's belting out and it's, it's so powerful, right? Music in general, if done well, can move people and does move people emotionally. So you know what harmony looks like, or you know what harmony sounds like. And then I think also, you know what harmony can look like. And the best example that I've come up with is take the Winter Olympics, for example, and you have, you know, the best athletes in the world coming together to perform. And I use uh, figure skating. And if you think about like men's figure skating and the grace and the beauty and the power that goes into that, and then they do it together, they do it with a couple Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you see that performance. And that has left me like breathless on like, how can you work all that together and have that be this epitome of harmony? So my kind of holy grail for life, JR, is creating a life that sounds like that, creating a life that Mm. looks like that. Mm. And I just don't find that in work-life balance. So the three parts of my system, just kind of broadly, number one is my one-page plan for success. So on my one-page plan, this is where the core values live. So, I mean, how many people in our lives do we run into that haven't even established for themselves? Like, what are the core driving values that you have in your life that, Mm -hmm. and and I'm sure it works this way for you, JR, like oftentimes my core values are what stops me (laughs) from doing things that aren't in accordance, right? In addition to just living out what our mission is. And so the other thing that lives on the one page plan for me is also core competencies, right? So what are the signature strengths that I have in my life and how can I use those to bring my gifts to the world, right? That's how I ended up in coaching and consulting uh, now after this 30-year career because I want to help people create the same kind of thing in their life. And then so the last thing on the one-page plan is, of course, our goals. So that's where our goals live yearly. Um, I do mine quarterly and monthly. And then I'll tell you about the third part of the process. The middle is called the Zen for Success. And my tagline for Zen for success is checking out so you can check in. And what are you checking out on? You're checking out on your day-to-day life, right? Because again, think about, you know, like all your audience here, busy executives, right? Mm-hmm. And I know because I've been there and done that. Mm-hmm. And I've ran the big organization and I've had the team of 80 people. And my analogy is they're like all little birds with their mouth open, right? <laughs> so they're just like, you know, your kids and your significant other, right? Everybody's competing. And again, I call these roles in my life, but everybody's competing for our time. And we want to be good at all those things. I want to be a good grandfather just as well as I want to be a good son. Fortunately, my parents are still living, but it makes me think about things differently. And so I take these time. I personally take a whole day every month. And now I, I don't ask my clients to do that. I just get on a path and I try to show them the value of taking out, checking out of your day to day, which means for me, JR, 
Nobody gets a hold of me. I'm talking about my wife, my kids, my operation. Like if it's my day of Zen, you're not going to get a hold of me. And I've structured my life to work like this. Hmm. And people might right now might be saying, well, wow, Jeff, that sounds a little bit selfish to take in a whole day. And I'll tell you, I make no apology. Like Mm -hmm. it is, it is selfish. And to me, it's critical because for one, this day of Zen for me, JR is like super grounding, right? Because a month is a good chunk of time, right? I'll do this. uh, May 1st is Monday of now, a week from today. That's Mm -hmm. my next day of Zen, right? Mm. And April has been a good chunk of time. And I want to review and reflect back across April and all the metrics of my life from how much is in my 401k to my body fat percentage to, I said that I was going to do this as a father this month. I said, I was going to, I was going to have a more meaningful contact with my daughter, Bailey. Did I do it or didn't I? Right. Mm -hmm. And when we're in our day-to-day life and we're just running hard all the time, my own observation is that that sort of reflection just doesn't happen at that granular mm-hmm. level. And then the second part of the day is in the next, the second half of the day, the afternoon is about planning a May that I can crush. And mm-hmm. I'm talking about the vision of what I want. It's using the reflection of what happened in April. Like, did it happen the way? The first question is, did I do what I said that I was going to do? And sometimes the answer to that is yes. And yet I still didn't achieve the goal, which means I might've just been wrong about the gestation, which to Mm -hmm. me is the amount of time, right? It's that secret part of goal setting and goal creation and achievement that, you know, like when the farmer plants the seed in the ground, right? He's got a lot of jobs to do there, like planting and watering and hoeing, but what he doesn't have to do is grow the seed, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's parts of this process that aren't up to us, but there are parts that are, and if we're not doing those parts, then we shouldn't expect the results that we want. So the other good thing about Zen is it is a touchstone for me of a time where I know I'm going to have, you know, use whatever term you want, white space, right? Where I'm just going to be able to think about things because the other thing about life, and I was talking about my one page plan to start with, you know, who was that? Mike Tyson said, everything grows great with your plan until you get punched in the face. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And, and guess what life does to us, right? Mm-hmm. If it's not punching us in the face, it's at least throwing us curveballs, Right. <laughs> so just as soon as I've made my great one page plan and I'm off on a mission in April, life's going to start throwing me curveballs or punching me in the face. Right. Think global pandemic, right. Punch in the face. Sure. Sure. Right. So it gives you a chance to sit with, right. What has happened, or, you know, and then if it's not life, I mean, what are the other parts of life that, you know, it's maybe one of your kids that's all of a sudden struggling in school. Maybe it's a aging parent who's going to require a different level of care. And there's, there's just things that we need to think about as responsible, productive adults. And if we don't take some intentional time to do that, it just never gets done. Or if it does get done, I would argue that it's not really super effective. So anyway, that's the middle part day of Zen. And then the third part to bring this trifecta together is what I call carpe diem, right? So it's seize the day. And I've got a document that I use that helps me. It's basically what helps me operationalize everything that's on my one page plan, right? Taking that monthly, that yearly plan 
and breaking it down. This is where my roles live. So all those roles that I mentioned, like father or coach or son or all these things. And it's a very intentional plan for me on a daily basis where I'm making sure that I'm living into these roles appropriately and effectively. And the biggest part of this for me is I ask myself questions every morning, JR. Like I, I go through meditation. I go, you know, I make sure I drink a green smoothie. I do 11 burpees every morning, like whether I want to or not, it doesn't matter what I want. I told myself that I'm going to do 11 burpees every morning, maybe a longer story for a different day, but I plan to live to at least 103, right? Mm. So the things that I'm doing when I'm age 53 and daily matter the most, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I ask myself questions like, what can I get from this day, right? That's mm-hmm. a that's Jim Rohn 101 is like not tearing pages off the calendar without thinking. And then the other is what or who do I need to be today? I'm bringing my whole energy to your podcast and your group because, and if it was just you and me having the conversation, I'd bring the same energy because, you know, you and me were even resonating in the, you know, our opening dialogue, just sure. a lot of similarities there. And I'm just about like taking it, even my own, like I'll just say all these words out loud just to remind myself, mm-hmm. this is what I need to be doing. So those are the three parts. And how long does that take? Those three steps already engage with you. I usually put uh, my clients on a four month plan. Okay. And I've, I've got clients that I don't know if anybody's actually just stayed with me for four months. I, I mean, it takes four months to kind of work through. And I will also tell you, like, nobody follows my thing exactly like chapter and verse. And I, that, that's not like a requirement. I think, I think you need to iterate, right? And it needs to really resonate with what your kind of work and your lifestyle is and what you create. I just, again, I refer to these in the very beginning. I refer to these as tools, right? And so I like to equip people with the tools that they can use to be successful in their own life. Sure. It's hard to believe that 1993 was 30 years ago. Every time I see that on the calendar, I have a a teammate who's retiring from his current profession after 30 years. And my baby boomer mind goes, oh, that must be somewhere in the 70s. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. That was 50 years ago, 1973. Yes. Uh, But across the arc of that 30-year career, and I'm looking at it right here, you went, you got promoted five times, it looks like, at least, at least what's down on paper. Right. You were a hardworking dude. When did you start to think about this harmony thing and in the construction industry, pretty blue collar, and you start talking about harmony and Zen and meditation? I bet you raised a few eyebrows. Perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) And and I'm not a big fan of the of the phrase like lived into, but yeah. that's I mean that is essentially what has happened through my life's trajectory. And I told you in the opening that I did feel like you know basically I've been put on this planet to do what I'm doing, and that happened for me really early. I mean I was really fortunate to work for this you know kind of blue collar working class father, a house painter. So I grew up on job sites. I mean, literally since I was like seven or eight years old, I've been, you know, going to work with him and working kind of in his shadow and a great, you know, mentor from a work ethic and those core values that I was speaking to on the one page plan. 
But then when I got into my career, I, I, yeah, I guess it was just inherent to work hard. And I did that first 10 years of my career where I was more of a field level, like uh, site manager. And I was having, you know, either really difficult conversations with people that weren't doing their thing effectively. And then ultimately trying to, and that's where that first seed of like operational excellence started to occur to me. But I'll tell you also in that Toastmaster speech on Friday, that first 10 years of my career, JR, I sold out. Like I wasn't a great father. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. a, I was a good father and I provided a, a living for my family, but I only took maybe a day or two off of work when my kids were born. And I look back across that now because I was telling myself at the time, like, oh, well, you're so important out here as a site manager. Like if you're not here, this place is not going to go. And, you know, I was convinced that it was, you know, a very, you know, selfish really. And, Mm -hmm. and JR, I got all the way to the point, you know, I mentioned some of those things about the rough times in my life, being overweight and all that. I mean, age 38 is literally when I was over a hundred, 335 pounds and, and about ready to be divorced and on the verge of bankruptcy and all these things. And it was really, that was my kind of crucible moment. I found that's where, you know, I, I found, I don't want to say I found religion. That would be, that would be a poor way to say it, but I found in myself, you know, that I had created this, you know, great life of career, but I had sold out to these other elements of my life, my own physical health, um, these relationships that I, you know, unfortunately today I have great relationships with my kids and I've done a lot of work to repair me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where it started. That's why I mentioned the, the personal development. So I didn't find the Tony Robbinses of the world and the Jim Rohns until 2008, which is now the year that I call this where I had an awakening in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was through that and it was through these other promotions. And then I started, you know, leading smaller groups. And then I started, you know, all the way up to leading the entire, you know, organization from an operational standpoint. And that's where I really found this love of, of people and growing, you know, giving other people the opportunity to either grow in the organization or grow personally. And then again, that's where all these other tools started kind of bolting on and, you know, just right out of the military and right into my work experience. I don't have a credit hour of college and I, you know, it's one of the biggest regrets in my life. But I, I think at the end of the day, that goes all the way back to your original question. I feel like I had to work twice as hard on the practical part of it since I didn't really, I mean, obviously the military was a big education and that's where the organization and the esprit de corps and, you know, so many of those other discipline related things that have, you know, made me effective as an individual leader and then as a bigger picture leader. So I guess I'm fortunate that I had that military to offset what I didn't get from the more formal education system. So as a uh, leadership developer, one of our strongest obligations is to develop our team and develop those around us. If you were to come into my organization, what would that look like as a team versus an individual? So as a team, I think probably the biggest thing that gets overlooked is communication. And I don't mean just the day-to-day kind of run-of-the-mill communication. And, and you, you know, I start asking some of my clients that have hired me for 
consulting some CEOs, and then they brought me into the organization. And we started to kind of unpack what they're doing and I'll, you know, ask those probing questions about, well, okay, well, why don't you show me what your onboarding system looks like for new team members? Or so what's your regular frequency of communication that you have with the entire team? You're the CEO and you're running this organization. Like, show me. And and again, this uh, like one page strategic plan for life that I shared like most of these tools that I now use in my life and with my clients are really just a direct lift from the things that I've able to use and been successful in business. So the one page plan, I think, is a really effective way to communicate with a broader team about what's the vision and the mission of what, what's the specific things that we're going after this year, this next quarter. And then again, getting back to communication, like using the one page plan as a tool to guide that. I mentioned like onboarding of a new employee, but like, what about just one-on-ones? There's so many people, there's so many CEOs that I meet with that aren't even having like regular structured interaction with their next level leaders. They think because they show up to the same office that they all work in and you might see them in the kitchenette or you might see them in the hallway, that's somehow communication. And obviously it is, but that's not the kind of communication that makes business work well, right? And so- when I see the challenges in communication, it's mostly, again, I just keep using this word intentionality. So mm-hmm. if you have intentionality around communicating the vision of what you're trying to do as an organization and all of those things, same things that I just mentioned about the day of Zen and all that, I mean, just like life comes at us from a, from a personal standpoint, if I'm trying to be the CEO who's crushing it, obviously that's what's happening or, or in our organization and not only that, but you have, let's say you have a, an organization that has a hundred people in it. Well, there's a hundred different people with a hundred different personalities mm-hmm. and different things that are happening in their life. And, and we see that, right? We see that play out. And if not that the, uh, the CEO has to have a plan for every person, but I believe if you, if you structure your organization correctly and you have methodical conversations where you're not only pushing the mission of your organization into the individual people, but you also have to have a feedback loop so that you're understanding how things are going, right? Because we all, we, I mean, any of us that have been in operations or led know that, you know, just as soon as you get eight of those plates spinning, again, I mentioned my holy grail was operational excellence. Like the other thing that I see about CEOs oftentimes is we'll get lazy, right? Like we're coming off a pretty, a pretty robust last, you know, whatever you want to call it, five, eight years. And I don't want to say that it hasn't been hard to make money, but it's, I don't know, it seemed to me like at least in our industry, it's been as easy as ever. And then when the climate starts to change, right? Like it is now a little bit when things are tightening up a little bit, a good thing to do is just review our own situation and say, you know, as a, as a leader of this organization, have I been a little lazy about how we're pushing the mission out here? Have I been a little lazy about how we're, you know, collecting information? Are we doing like a climate survey for our entire team to give us feedback on the culture of this organization or my leadership style, you know, any of those things? So I think communication, it it doesn't solve everything, but I'll tell you, it is one of the cornerstone pieces of my mind, JR, of a good, healthy organization. And, And it's kind of the gateway 
to so many other things that are important in the, in the organization. Yeah. So we talk a lot about communications uh, as well. And for us, it's conversations. And who are you having conversations with? I just read this in, in uh, Harvard Business Review yesterday. The further up the food chain you get, the more journaling is important. A lot, I find that having a journal and a conversation with myself invaluable. But I think the one that gets missed the most is the significant others in our lives because they're on this journey with us. For sure. And as I look at your bio and think about, you just said conversations. What is that conversation with your significant other? You, you, you shared with us, it didn't work the first time, but now it sounds like it's going pretty well. One, one might assume there's communication going on there. Yeah. And it's, it's really forcing yourself to do the exact same fundamental things that work in business, in my mind. And that's, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. That, that is one of the closest relationships that we have, right, with our significant other. And if you think about like being a good communicator in general, I always believe the, the, the place to start as a good communicator is really being a good listener. Right. Mm. And so just slowing down, right? Like, and, and, you know, my significant other and I have a lot of things going, a lot of travel. We've got kids, we've got grandkids, we've got, it's almost like my role in business, but, you know, it's almost like I have these two, you know, competing priorities like that where I have a lot, you know, work hard, play hard, that old kind of analogy, yeah. but, but keeping them all sorted out. So I think it's really slowing down. And being it, it's the listening piece. And then again, I would also come back to the same word I used before in an effective business. It's intentional, right? Like, mm. do you, do you have, like, here's a great best practice. Do you have a date night, you know, with your significant other at least once a week where you go somewhere, you know, if you've got kids at home without the kids, you know, that, and again, if you could put these intentional things in place you're going to set up the opportunities to have those mm. slowed down opportunities to listen, right? So, you know, while you're opening the bottle of wine and thinking about what's going to be on the dinner, you're really listening to what your spouse is saying about their day or this last week or what's occurring in their life, because that's important, right? Slowing down and listening and then creating this intentional time. Now, you're a great coach. I'm I've just learned two things from you in the last two two sentences. So I'm taking notes. Okay. <laughs> Love so that. Thanks for that. Love that. Um, oh my God, listening, it sounds so simple and it's so hard to do. We train a few hundred coaches a year and almost every one of them has that same phenomenon, right? For anywhere from zero to 50 years, they've been the answer person. Right. And their brain, as soon as they hear a question, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, tell them the answer. We have the answer. Tell them. Please tell them. Right. And so uh, listening to listen, and, and uh, I think we all borrow this from Stephen Covey, listen to understand and not to respond. It sounds so simple. But how yeah. challenging is that? I, and I think the other big part of the equation that we're talking about right here is the ego piece, right? Because mm -hmm. that's... Mm -hmm. The other part of the equation from that, you know, 50 years of experience or 30 years in my case, where, you know, you get awful proud of your own kind of program. And then not only 
like you mentioned, do you want to kind of just jump in with the answers, but it's the, you know, it's the, I know best scenario. And I don't have to look any further than like conversation was with my kids. And then I have to check myself and say, hold on. Okay. Well, you might know a way right here and you might have some life experience in this example, but like, is that best for them or is it best to help, you know, coach them to explore and find the right answer for themselves? Because, you know, we know as parents, like, well, we're not always going to be able to be there with them. So getting your kids to understand how to think and not what to think, I think is like a pivotal part of parenting. Now you just um, said one of my favorite things, and that is have the courage to delegate before you have to. And for me, in a nutshell, that's what coaching is all about. I just opened up the spreadsheet that I have, and I literally have like 500 stories. <laughs> but imagine, you know, putting my arm around my uh, 11-year-old grandson and saying, you know, when I did this in 1980, <laughs> it right. worked for me. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it, it probably worked for you. Right. And he's going to look at me like, did they have car? Did they have cars then, Grandpa? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that, I, the beauty of coaching is really uh, what's hidden in coaching is teaching people how to accept delegation and move with it. You know, the first time you tell somebody, uh, "Do you mind if I put my coaching hat and help you grow through this?" They're going to look at you like like my wife did thirty nine years ago when I told her what my 30 year plan was. She was like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, intergenerational, uh, leadership. I just talked about my 11 year old grandson. Hopefully I'm able to provide him. Uh, we have 10 of them been very blessed in that regard. Congratulations. Some measure of, uh, education. I would have said mentorship a few years ago, but for me, anyway, anyway, I think ego is embedded in mentorship. Whereas coaching, you throw ego out the door because they're in the driver's seat and you're in the passenger seat. Right. Uh, having taught all four of my children to drive, that's a pretty frightening thing to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the other thing I think it's beautiful about coaching is I've said for years as a leadership developer, there's two things I can't give you. I can't make you any smarter. The synapses are popping the day you're born or they're not. Maybe on the margin, I can make, give you knowledge. I can give you experience. I can give you education. But you're Einstein the day you're born or you're not. And the second thing I can't give you is drive. And I think embedded in us throwing our ego out the window, sitting in the passenger seat and saying, I want to help you figure this out. Well, drive has to come with that or they're not going to. Uh, they have to own the solution and they want the solution. I don't know. What are your thoughts about coaching versus mentoring or where does drive come from? Where do you get that kind of drive, but leave a, a harmonized life? Well, I think you can lead drive. So I think that's what leadership is, is, is casting a vision yeah. about something that is a future state that is different or better than where you are today. And mm -hmm. I, you use that term like intergenerational. And I also love that because I've been, I was really starting to experience that 
at the end of my career where then all of a sudden I was, I was hiring kids out of college that were younger than my older kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is my new workforce is younger than my own older kids. And so I had learned to, you know, really relate to my children of their age. And then when they started coming into the workforce, even younger, it was a constant evolution on my part. And I, I think I really started to figure this out. You know, it was what, maybe eight or 10 years ago when there used to be a lot of chatter around millennials in general Mm -hmm. and, and what they were going to mean to the industry or, you know, to our workforce in general. And I think for the most part, like it, it's been super beneficial to our, my industry specifically, I was seeing it through the lens and then really just in the world. And I think, you know, albeit there are inherent challenges that come up with, you know, having these, um, you know, multi-generational and, and oftentimes they're either like challenges from my part where I'm the Gen Xer, you know, running the operation, you're the later boomer that's the CEO of the organization. And we're leading a whole company full of basically millennials and then these next generations that are coming in. Mm-hmm. And so again, I go back to communicating the vision because if you can appeal to the right vision and the right messaging around the vision, in at least in my own experience, the it, it almost doesn't matter what the generation is and they all like do it differently. And, and it's, it's even in that whole age range, you know, I can't remember specifically what it is for millennials, but like, if you break it down, there's millennials that are closer to gen X and then closer oh, yeah. to these later generations. And I believe if you create the right kind of mission and you get people rallied around that, that's the secret sauce to me is yeah. the, communicating the vision, communicating what better looks like, and also where are we on that trajectory? And so again, that goes right back to the mm. communication. Yeah, for me, I, we have multiple generations here. I think it has as much to do with the age you are in the arc of your life as it does what generation you were born. Yep. Well, certainly being an IT native versus an IT immigrant, you know, there's differences in abilities Millennials are our CEOs already. Right. I remember 1993 was 30 years ago. Right. <laughs> uh, I think millennials are all in their 30s uh, yep. now. Uh, it's Gen Z now, and even Gen Z's entering the workforce. And I've coined the phrase Gen AA, so I want you to, to give me credit when you use it, because what do you do gotcha. when you start over? You start over at AA, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a justice, right? I'm, and if you look at Shakespeare's seven stages uh, of life, I'm the old man with the belly and a lot of stories. And I, told, I tell old man stories. I tell stories from 50 years ago. It blows my mind. And some of them are relevant, but mostly they're entertaining. Uh, right. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.